Good morning, New Life. It's good to be with you, whether you are here in the room or online. I'm just so glad you are joining us this morning. My name is Sharon Swift. I'm the pastor of Connections and Equipping, and uh, just grateful today to be able to bring the word forth to you. Um, We are continuing a really important series called God and Our Bodies. Um, This is a a series where we're exploring the connection between our spirituality and our sexuality. And so this is, you know, a topic that is not the easiest to talk about. There's complexities to this. There are awkward conversations that sometimes can happen. We are wrestling with some profound questions about who we are and um, our physical selves and how we reconcile that to the fact that we have spiritual lives um, that we usually talk a lot more about in church. And so how do we kind of integrate these things? And we know that God created us, fashioned us in physical bodies and said that it was good. And we know that when Jesus was resurrected, we just celebrated Easter, right? We're in Easter tide. We're still celebrating that. He is risen and alive. He was not resurrected into some spiritual apparition. He was resurrected into a body. And so we know that our bodies matter to God and how they that and that they are connected to who He's made us to be, that we're not just Um, souls um, that are trapped by a body, but our physical body is an important part of how we relate to God and how God created us to be. And so we are exploring this series, and um, Pastor Rich kicked us off really strongly in the first week. Um, Last week is really worth catching up on if you did miss it. It is a really powerful overview of where we're going over the next 10 weeks. Um, And so I encourage you to watch that, but he kicked us off reminding us that one of the core implications as we explore this topic is that we all experience brokenness in our sexuality, each and every one of us. And so part of the work we have to do in these, in these weeks is to explore the ways in which we are encountering brokenness. Um, and so we do this because um, it's important to name and understand where we are so that we can see the invitation of Jesus into something better, into wholeness, into integration. And so I think about when I was in, um, in the early in the pandemic, I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. I can't go anywhere to finally get in shape. Um, I have made many attempts over the years to get in shape, and I have failed spectacularly at every single one. But something changed in 2020, and I want to say it was the pandemic. I do think that that helped in the sense that I I was fortunate to have time. Um, I was one of the folks that was um, needed to shelter in place. I know that wasn't everyone's situation. But what really changed was I was more honest with myself about where I physically was at. It was a little bit painful to recognize I was, you know, in far worse shape than I had anticipated. And the problem was every time I tried to get in shape, I overestimated what I was able to do, and I would take on these really ambitious plans, and then I would fail in a week or two. There's no way I could sustain it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, see, I I appreciate some of you laughing, because you know, you know the pain, you've been there. And so um, that's the problem, right? When you overestimate, when you can't see where you're really at, the course, the path forward looks murky. Um, And we set ourselves up to only experience more frustration, which is what I did 
repeatedly through my 30s. And so um, what shifted in 2020 was not so much what I did, but the grace I gave myself for where I really was at. Because I was honest, I was able to show myself grace, and I was able to actually achieve a goal. A plan that should have taken two months took me six months, but that's okay, because I was aware of where I'm at, and I was committed to the journey. And I had a realistic idea of what was gonna be uh, needed to get there. And so why do I bring this up? Um, because this is similar. We, as we explore our sexuality and our bodies and how they are connected to our spirituality, we need to really locate ourselves and understand in what ways has brokenness entered into our understanding of our own bodies, disrupted our relationship to our own bodies, or disrupted our own view of our sexuality. And so I'm going to take some time today to unpack some of that. And that means that I wanna give you a word of care about caring for yourself and, and how you can get support. If something I say today um, is difficult to hear, if it, is, um, if it stirs up some pain and some wounds, um, that's okay. We want to make sure you know that there are ways you can receive care and that there are ways that we are coming alongside you to support you. And so, and this is on behalf of the whole pastoral team, not any single one person. All of us want to make sure that you are receiving the support you need to tackle this complex issue. And so one thing is if you're in the room here every week, there will be altar ministry where you can receive prayer. That is going to be made available to you each and every week. And I encourage you, if you're in the room, to take advantage of that. If there's an area that you feel challenged in or unsettled in or need just that extra support of someone praying for you. We are also going to have on our website available a journaling guide. Each week, we'll have a new guide based on what the sermon is for that Sunday. This gives you a way of processing what you are hearing and, um, and give you a chance to just further name and clarify what is going on beneath the surface and how God might be coming to you in that time of struggle or challenge. Um, we also have a set of resources that we are recommending if you need further exploration on a topic, further study. Um, there are resources available. And then um, we are also having sermon discussions online every two weeks on Tuesday nights. This is a little different than the ones we've been having after 11 o'clock service. These are um, on Zoom but open for everyone. And it's a chance on Tuesday night to further process what we've been hearing um, over the last two sermons. And so that starts this Tuesday. You can register to get that link. And we are creating a guided space for reflection um, led by our pastors and elders on this difficult topic. And so there are a number of spaces that you can engage. And last but not least, we are having a couple of workshops over the course of this series. And the next one, the first one is next Sunday, uh, Sunday the 7th from 1.30 to 3.30. We are featuring um, a seminar with, um, with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Uh, he is the author, actually, his book is called The Soul of Shame. It's an excellent book. I'm working my way through it right now, and it is excellent, and I encourage you. This is a phenomenal opportunity to hear from someone who is a psychiatrist, but also a Christian who has walked through some of these issues and their spiritual implications. And so 
I encourage you, take advantage of these spaces, take advantage of the support. This, some of this will be reiterated to you at the end of service, so don't worry if you realize during the service you need it, but I want you to be aware there is a lot of support as we talk about this difficult topic. And so today, we are going to talk about John 8 and the woman caught in adultery. And this may be a scripture passage that you're familiar with. It's kind of one that's alluded to in popular culture. You'll hear about people um, setting down their stones or cast, being the first to cast a stone. Um, sometimes you hear that reference. It's from this. But what we're going to do is look at more than just this woman. A lot of times when we hear about this passage, we're focused on the woman, we're focused on the Pharisees, um, but we're going to actually take a look slowly at each person involved in this narrative and the way that they are present in this story, the way they're accounted for or not accounted for in this story, and really explore um, each one and their kind of point of view, because each one represents a way in which we experience brokenness in this world. 2,000 years ago, these issues were still complex and difficult and challenging. And we're going to see that. And as we look through the eyes of each of these people, we're going to see ways that we ourselves might have encountered brokenness, ways in which we have been um, brought into a, a, a false understanding of our body, of our sexuality, of our wholeness. And so I want to encourage you, in light of the fact that we are providing you with all this support, I want to encourage you to have the courage to consider, as I go through each person, where are you resonating with their brokenness? Where are you finding yourself today? Where are you experiencing brokenness in your sexuality? And what might be that invitation of God in that space? Each one of us is experiencing brokenness, and some of us in multiple areas. And so we want to pay attention to where the Spirit is speaking to us. And so I want to go ahead and dive into the passage. Let's do it. John 8, we're going to be reading from verses 2 through 11. The word of the Lord. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they, may ha they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us guidance through your word, and that you continue to speak 
to us today through your word. And so, Lord, would you come now? Would you give us your spirit to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you might be saying to us today? To hear your invitation to move away from condemnation and towards your good invitation of grace and of mercy. Your invitation of goodness that is found in our bodies and in our sexuality. We thank you, Jesus, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. This is a, a fascinating passage for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of things I could talk about in here, and I, I sort of wish, you know, we could have an extended time with it, but um, including Jesus riding in the, in the dust or on the ground, um, that's endlessly fascinating. Uh, we probably don't have enough information to actually reach a solid conclusion, but it is really fun to think about what he was doing and what message he was sending. Um, it's really interesting, but like I said, we're gonna focus on the people of this story because we are trying to understand the different ways in which we experience brokenness in our own sexuality, the ways in which we have missed what God's good invitation to us is. And so I wanna stay focused on that, and so there's a lot of things we won't get to address, but I wanna go person by person and see what we can learn about our own sexuality and what invitations God might have for us. And so first and foremost, I want to give a little background so that you understand some of the tensions that are here and why this was such a fraught uh, encounter. Um, first and foremost, we need to remember that Israel was being controlled by Rome, okay? They had some religious freedom, but they were ultimately under the power of the Roman Empire. So what does that mean? It means that in order for them to kind of work together, they actually had two court systems. They had a religious court overseen by the religious leaders that could um, rule on things surrounding religious law, violations of religious law. They could not kill anyone, though. But they, no power of execution, but they could hold people accountable to viol violating religious law. The Roman courts handled everything else, all the other laws, and they did have the power of the sword. They did have the power to execute. And so, the, you know, we see this even in Jesus' um, journey to the cross, that he had two trials, right? He had a religious trial, and he had a Roman trial. And so um, the reason I bring this up is because that is part of the tension here. This is part of the trap that the Pharisees are setting up for Jesus. This is found over and over again in the Gospels that they would try, in order to undermine his influence, in order to, um, you know, kind of reduce his influence, they would try to set him up in these paradigms and with these questions where he, he was in a no-win situation. And so in their mind, they've masterminded this situation. They're like, we got it. We're going to bring in this woman. If he says that the law of Moses is the correct law to follow and that they should hold her to the Mosaic law, that means that they can stone her. But that means that they violated now Roman law. And by him ordering her stoning and saying, yes, that's what you should do, he's going to get in trouble with the Roman government. And their hands are wiped clean. If he says, no, 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 we're not allowed to stone anyone uh, based on Roman law, that's not a power we have, now he's undermining the law of Moses. And you can imagine how, like, that would really undermine his ability to teach in the temple and draw a large crowd. That's like now he's going against their core and essential law. And so they are thinking this is a no-win situation for Jesus. They have got him trapped, okay? They are feeling good about themselves. 
And of course, in Jesus' brilliant way, he turns that whole knowing situation on its head and actually uses it to reveal who they are. And so we're going to talk more about the Pharisees and the scribes and how this, the tables got turned on them um, as we go. But I want to start first and foremost by exploring this woman and her role in all of this. The woman. She's not named here. And we know very little about her except that she was caught in the act of adultery, which is wrong. But when we look at her, and her experience of brokenness in this story. And we don't know what happened before, but in this story, we can, I think, of two words that we also might um, experience in our own sexuality and in our own brokenness. I think of the word traumatized, and I think of the word objectified. These are two ways that we, too, experience brokenness. First of all, traumatized... She is dragged out, presumably of a bed or some kind of illicit situation, dragged out in public. We don't know. They might have put her in jail overnight and then brought her in the morning to the temple in order to confront Jesus, or maybe she was brought straight there early in the morning. But here she is. She's not even just caught in this um, compromised situation, but she's brought out very publicly. This is, as we see earlier in a few um, scriptures earlier, that this is the day after a major festival ended. There will be a lot of people around, a lot of activity as people travel back away from Jerusalem to their homes. And we know that there was a large crowd at the temple where they brought her because Jesus was teaching, and Jesus always attracted these large crowds when he taught. And that's the reason the Pharisees are so upset, right, is that his influence is so large. And so not only is this all happening to her, but it's happening in the most humiliating way, so publicly, with so much shame being brought upon her. And so we can imagine that even if she wasn't a person that experienced trauma prior to this, she certainly would have been traumatized by this experience. It is hard to imagine a scenario in which she left this completely unscathed, this incredibly, incredibly public and humiliating spectacle, because that was the point. The Pharisees were attempting to make a spectacle of her in order to get Jesus. And so Jesus, I mean, as she sees all of this, this is all happening around her, and so she's experiencing all this condemnation. All this trauma is unfolding in her body. Her identity is being publicly smeared. Everyone will know exactly what happened. And so I know that there are some of us in this room that identify with that kind of brokenness, that brokenness in our sexuality came through trauma, through sexual violence, through abuse, through rape, through very painful things. The Center for Disease Control is trying to look for statistics on this. And the most recent numbers from the Centers for Disease Control states that over half of women and almost one out of every three men have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetimes. Over half of women and nearly one out of every three men That means that in any given room, and I want you to think about this church space, in these rows, 
that is a lot of people who have firsthand experience of trauma that has disrupted and distorted their sexuality and their relationship to their own body. That is a lot of us. And if that's you, I want you to know that you are not alone. Men and women, you are not alone. And that the Lord sees that. He sees it all. Even things that you never spoke about, that you didn't even bother to share because you believe no one would hear you or listen to you, the Lord sees that. And it matters to the Lord that that happened. It matters to the Lord that you weren't met with justice and compassion. It matters to Jesus that your relationship to your own body, to your own sexuality, has been disrupted. And that the goodness of what God has put in you and in your body was defiled, was violated. And so the gospel is here for you today, that there is a path to healing and redemption and restoration, that God wants you to enjoy the good gifts in spite of what has happened to you. And so that's just one way in which we may be experiencing that kind of brokenness today. But also objectification, which goes a little bit hand-in-hand with the trauma. When we use people, instead of seeing them as whole people, when we use them for our own gratification, or when we reduce them to something much more simple than being in the image of God. See, the, the Pharisees see her as just a pawn in their scheme. She's quite literally bait in their trap for Jesus. That's her full usefulness to her, to them. She is nothing more than some object in which they can use to try to trap Jesus. That's all she, there's no humanity for her, there's no compassion or justice for her, but instead, you know, they don't see her as like, oh, this is someone that's in a broken situation, that needs accountability, that needs help to live differently. Instead, she's part of a power play. And I know that being objectified can happen to men and to boys, but more often than not, this happens to women. For a lot of us, it's a way of life. It's a daily occurrence in small and in big ways. Historically, because women have not been in power, they're more likely to be objectified, to be seen as less than human, for our values to be assigned to our bodies, to the shape of our bodies, to the size of our bodies, to the complexion of our bodies. We are seen for our usefulness to men. We are seen for our relationships to men. If women historically didn't have a father figure, they were more vulnerable. If they went unmarried, then they were seen as, you know, living less than a full life. Our relationships, uh, our, even our identity is often uh, defined by our relationships to other men, like being wives or being mothers, mothers of sons even, historically. And so a lot of that goes along with being objectified, that we're reduced as women so often to being a one-dimensional character, that we, our lives are about one thing, how we look, the role we serve. Instead of being seen as complex instead of being seen with beautiful gifts, that we make contributions that are multifaceted and multidimensioned, we're reduced to something so simple as being married or unmarried. You know, even the words we have for that, 
are so tarnished, right? Men are bachelors and that has a sort of shine to it, but women used to be called spinsters and old maids if they didn't get married. Now we've tried to redeem it, right, with bachelorette or something. Um, But that's historically how it's been viewed. And so we see that it dehumanizes women. It reduces us. And so if you are in that position, I want to say you're not alone. And maybe it's not just in that. Maybe it's simply that you have been objectified by your physical body. You've been told you're too big, too skinny, too brown, too dark, too pale. You've been told that, you know, you're not pretty enough. You've been told no one's going to want you the way you are unless you change, unless you alter yourself, unless you meet some ideal that you're never going to be able to meet. You're too something. And I want to say that this is a painful thing for me because I see it even with my own daughters, that they are living into this inheritance of women that women have experienced for generations. You know, they've been with me in the car when weird things have happened or when men have approached me. And I've been in times where I was driving on the highway and literally someone's honking at me. I'm assuming like something's wrong with my car. And instead, I turn and a man is making a lewd gesture, you know? And my little kids are in the back seat asking, like, What's, what is he doing? Like, what is he trying to say? And then just a, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter was driving, and same thing happened to her. She's 17. They even had experiences in middle school, walking home a few blocks from the school to our, our house, and grown men are commenting on their bodies or staring at them or making, uh, trying to engage them in conversation. This is a painful thing, and a lot of women carry this. And we carry fear, because if we don't respond the way a man wants, then we can be subject to even more abuse. If we try to be polite and just keep moving, if the wrong person feels encouraged by that, and then we have to put down a boundary, suddenly the tables turn, and now we're getting cursed at and called names. It's not easy. And I know, brothers, I'm not saying this to try to condemn you. I want you to hear what I hear, not just from myself and my daughters, but even in our congregation, that this is some of the pain that women carry just by existing. Sometimes just even by coming to church. It's happened to me even outside here on the steps of the church just two weeks ago with a congregant. (laughs) I'm having a conversation and, you know, I'm getting harassed. And so this is the reality we live in. And so many of us, have been told things about our bodies and the function of them and the value of them by complete strangers, but they cut, they hurt. And so I want to say to you, whether you've been traumatized or whether you have been objectified, that the Lord sees you too. That you are made, you are wonderfully, fearfully and wonderfully made. That he has created you for good things And that your body is good in whatever shape it is, in whatever size it is, in whatever function it serves, in whatever season of life you're in, your body is a good thing. I want to talk about the Pharisees too, but before I do, I want to make sure we talk about someone that is not named in this story but is another way in which we see brokenness. The man. The man that she was caught in adultery with. He is not mentioned. 
He is not even brought up. He does not appear in this scene at all. He is not addressed in any way. And this is a reality, again, um, historically, that has held um, that in many times men who have the power historically have excused and minimized and dismissed the harm that men have caused, that those in power protect those like them. And so when I think of the two words of brokenness that this man represents, I think of those two words, minimized and dismissed. Here's the reality. Both of them did something wrong. Both of them need accountability. And actually, by not holding the man accountable, it's actually robbing him of a path to redemption. That he is missing out. Accountability is not just um, to be cruel and to punish people. Accountability makes sure that repair can be made, that redemption can happen. There are people that were hurt by what she did, I'm sure, and there were people that were hurt by what he did that are connected to him. His inability to actually be held accountable means those things don't get addressed and repaired. And so the harm continues and ripples out from him. And I wonder if he carried guilt about what happened. By not being held accountable, we think we're showing him mercy. But in fact, he missed the opportunity to be in Jesus' presence and to have a moment of redemption and forgiveness that Jesus might have wanted to say something to him, offer him something, some kind of invitation, some kind of freedom from condemnation, but he never got that chance because his role was minimized. And so those of us um, that are in the room that have maybe been the source of harm or have allowed harm to continue, there is a path of redemption offered to us in Jesus. Every one of us falls short in areas of our lives. And so rid yourself of that guilt and condemnation. Move towards repair by approaching Jesus, knowing that he will forgive, but that he will also restore and make whole. But also, there's a dismissal in all this, right? This is also overlooked. And for some of you, that may be how you're experiencing brokenness. You may be experiencing brokenness because what happened was just pushed under the carpet. You know, that he, that, you know, we have the sayings now, they're modern sayings, but they hold an old truth, that boys will be boys. Or maybe that you were told, like, it's not a big deal, it happens to everyone. All your aunts and, you know, everyone is, has experienced that. Or it's not a big deal, it's our relative, like, we don't want to make a fuss. We don't want our name tarnished. And so what happened to you was minimized, it was pushed under the carpet, it was not acknowledged. And so if either of these are you today, I want to again offer you a word of good news that Jesus also seeks to heal and restore and redeem, that he sees even the things that were done in secret, the things that were dismissed by the people in power, the things that they chose to overlook, Jesus sees it. He sees you even the things you never spoke about. And he is offering you his goodness today and his healing and his restoration. And that there's a path forward to something better. That you don't have to live with that burden. And that it can be named. That you don't have to kind of live with the shame of it in secret. Finally, I want to move to the Pharisees. 
Now, this one is probably a little more obvious, the Pharisees and their role, but the two words that came to mind when I think of the brokenness that they exemplify in this story is desensitized and abusive. Desensitized because I think that they genuinely have forgotten at this point that they are dealing with human beings. That this woman is not just a pawn, as I mentioned earlier. That she's not just a prop in their plan to trap Jesus. That the man and the woman involved have actual worth, that they are reflecting the image of God, that they are meant to be more than just power play. I think that power has a way of doing that. Humans don't handle power well. And so you don't have to be a religious leader to fall into this trap. Some of us are managers in spaces, and we oversee teams of people. Some of us are even just coworkers, and we get to walk with people that we see get mistreated. We are in families where we see things that go on, and we don't speak up. We don't want to diminish what we have. And so my encouragement to you is to think about in those places where you might hold power, are you stewarding that well? Are you making sure that compassion and justice are occurring on your teams, on the people you oversee? Are you speaking up for the marginalized, for the people that have no power? Or are you in the other camp where you're misusing your power and your authority? That God has given you something, but you're not stewarding it well. And I have to, I have to say something about religious leaders here, especially church leaders. As a pastor, I can't not address that. For many of us, the harm we've experienced in our sexuality and around our bodies happened in church spaces. Of course, we know that there are scandals all over the place, and sadly, they're barely scandals anymore because it's become expected to hear about pastors and other religious leaders who either caused harm and targeted people that were given to them, who trusted them under their care, or they helped cover it up in order to protect an institution we see it in corporations even and stuff, but we've seen it in the church, and what's so painful about it is that it's the church, that these are people that are supposed to represent the voice of God, that are supposed to guide us in the ways of God, and then they take advantage of that power and that influence, and they cause so much harm, and then they're never held to account. Now, we see that shifting, but it's not only in that way that we see this abuse. We also see it in the way things are taught in church spaces, which might be some of the anxiety some of you carry about this sermon series, is the way churches have talked about the human body and sexuality have been so poorly done and caused harm, I think, especially of purity culture. Those of you who have been in the church for any number of years, you have probably heard all kinds of things related to purity culture, of what our value is. And again, I have to be honest with you, a lot of times women are experiencing the bulk of this, but men experience this too. That the ripple effect of this is just, it's big. And so first and foremost, that um, women are um, told that their greatest gift that they have to offer in marriage is their virginity that they are responsible for the, the um, holiness of men and their urges. They're the ones responsible to keep the line there and keep everything holy and follow the rules, that they bear that responsibility for the men. 
we've been told too that um, you know we should just follow the rules and pray and if we do all the right things that God will bring us a spouse and immediately we will experience an amazing sex life upon marriage just instantly, just like that, you know? And so that's, these are the lies we've been told. That's not something that the scripture promises us. And I have seen generation after, uh, you know, of women who have written the letters to their future spouse, you know, and put them in a box and, you know, worn the promise rings and they find themselves 10 and 15 and 20 years later saying, I followed all the rules. I did everything that I was told. Why did God not, what did I do wrong? Why did God not answer that prayer? Only to be told we were misled, that what we were promised was not really in Scripture. And the disappointment that marriage would solve all the problems and make us ultimately happy, that it's the ultimate goal, is just not true. But we've oriented our lives now around it. And so this is the lie of purity culture, among others. And so I want to just say as a pastor that if this is you, if you have experienced brokenness in this area because of things that were taught in church spaces and the way sexuality was taught and the way your body was addressed, I just want you to know that Jesus sees you as more than just that, than someone's spouse, than someone's um, policeman on keeping them holy, that you, you are more than just having to hide yourself to keep other people holy, that you are, again, gloriously made to reflect the image of God and all its fullness. And you can do that as a single person in its fullness, not lacking anything, not missing anything. And we will talk more about marriage and singleness as we go through this series. But I want to close by talking about Jesus because he's the last person in this story. Um, but of course, he brings us the best possible news. So what does Jesus do in this whole scenario? Well, obviously, by asking the question and by confronting um, confronting all of them with this question, he does three really powerful things. He confronts all these distortions of God's good gift in giving us bodies and in giving us our sexuality. He confronts those distortions. He actually raises the standard for all of them. He doesn't leave anyone out of, of rising up and meeting a better and higher standard, but he also offers an invitation instead of condemnation. By asking what he asks, he holds a mirror up to them. By asking who will cast the first stone, who is without sin, he's holding a mirror up to the Pharisees. And they have no choice but to confront that. But he's also holding up a standard for this woman. He is not excusing what she did. He is not just letting that go. Now, I know what he says to her seems harsh. It seems harsh to us to just say, I'm not condemning you, Go and sin no more. And that's a hard thing because in, in the modern world, the word sin kind of carries a lot of baggage. But here's the reality. He's not just talking about behavior, right? A lot of where we, we talk about in church spaces is the behavior around our sexuality. But first he is saying, in sin, we have, um, we've, have a distorted view of who God is. And then out of that, the way we relate to other people is dysfunctional, is broken, is distorted, it's twisted. And so he's trying to address first 
that thing by talking about sin. He's talking first about how she's relating to God. Um, there's a really great book called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. And uh, he gives this quote. He says, the good news is that in Christ, all our sins, past, present, and future, have been atoned for. Therefore, the purpose of addressing sin should never be to corner heavy-laden people with further evidence of their moral failures. Sin language helps people to name their pain and invites them to consider how good yet humbling it would be to return home. The Father who waits for us is not ashamed of us. See, here's the reality. We see in this story that everyone is welcome to come to Jesus. We can come to Jesus as we are, broken and all. But in the presence of Jesus, we cannot remain the same. Let me say it again, because it's good. It's good news, family. We can come to Jesus as we are, but in the presence of Jesus, we cannot remain the same. Amen? That's good news for us today. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. He loves the goodness of your body and all the goodness that comes with it too much. It's too sacred. It's too good for him to leave it as it is, to leave you as you are. And instead, he's inviting us into something better. See, that's the thing. I believe that what he is offering this woman is not condemnation, but an invitation. And here's the reality. The men, the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, they could have done something other than put down their stones. See, they, they put down their stones, but what did they do after? They withdrew. They walked away. They did not want to hear any more of what Jesus had to say. But imagine if they had stayed. Jesus would have probably had something, I truly believe this, something to offer them just like he had something to offer this woman. A way forward, a path of wholeness and redemption. But instead, they chose to withdraw. They heard what Jesus had to say and they knew they didn't want to hear more. And here's the reality, family. As we continue through this series, the temptation will be to withdraw, to pull back from the hard places, to withdraw from the awkward conversations, to feel, to just give in to the discomfort and opt out. And I'm encouraging you today that the good news is if you wait in the presence of Jesus, he will have something to offer you. What is he saying to you now as you think through all the people in this situation, as you think through all the different kinds of brokenness? Where is he calling you today to lean in, to put down the stone, and to hear his good invitation to something better? He has that for each of us. And as we go through this series, I want to encourage you not to give in to the temptation to withdraw, but to instead to lean in, to step into community, to be willing to sit with some of the hard questions because there is something so good on the other side. Will we as a church be ready to put down our stones and to stay and listen to the invitation of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are so good to us. That you have given us good things. And that you are not content to leave us as we are in our brokenness, in these distortions. 
But instead, Lord, you are coming to redeem, to restore, to heal, and to not just bind up our wounds, but to proclaim goodness over us, that our bodies are good things, not things to be shamed of. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cut through the noise of shame, that you would cut through the noise of condemnation, that you would cut through the lies that we have heard about our bodies, the curses spoken over our bodies and our sexuality, the mixed messages we've received in church and out of church. Lord, we don't want just the wisdom of our day. We want wisdom from the Creator, the one who fashioned us and knows our body intimately, who knows our history, who knows where we've been, but also has a vision to take us somewhere glorious and beautiful, to experience a wholeness that we have only heard about. And so, Lord, would you cut through the noise and speak to us today? What is your beautiful invitation? What is your redemptive path for us? Lord, these are hard questions, and yet we know you are with us. Lord, we know that you will be a better spouse to us than anyone ever could be. That you are close to us and will love us like no other. And so, Lord, would you draw near and would you share with us that sweet invitation to something better, to grace, to mercy, to glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You as a 
some sobering news for you. No one here is an expert. I don't care if you're 25 or if you're 85 or anywhere in between. We are all in the same boat. Everyone, including myself, including you, everyone here is experiencing sexual brokenness. No experts. There are none. And so the beauty is there's an invitation before all of us. We have been invited to the table with Jesus. And so those characterizations, the woman, and that can be you as a man as well, the woman, the man, the unknown mysterious man in the story, and then the leaders in power. The invitation is for you to be bold enough to believe what we've been singing about, which is the faithfulness of God, right? And to find yourself in the story. Pastor Rich shared with us last week, he said during this, season, this series, it's really important that we not just speak in the eye, but we listen in the eye. I'm not listening for my husband. I'm not listening for you. You don't need to listen for your neighbor. Who are you? Listen for yourself. Where is God speaking to you about you? Look, friends, this is challenging. It's challenging. But the beauty, the beauty is Jesus is with you. He's walking with you. He's beside you. He's at the end. He's in you. You are not alone. And you are in a community that recognizes that we're all in the same boat. So what do we have to fear? 
It's a level playing ground here. So the first invitation for you, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come to my right. If you are sensing right now, look, I just need need someone to speak life into me right now. Come up and receive prayer. It could jumpstart you. It could be the thing that you need to just help you to feel free, to feel like you can go to the next level, to feel like you can pursue the next part of the journey. And then the second thing, as Pastor Sharon mentioned, this Tuesday, remember, we're going to start having our sermon discussions online every other Tuesday. We're starting this Tuesday, and you're going to be able to be in community, have these discussions, again, feel it's a safe environment, and we'll also have a space where you can shoot your questions to us, just give things for us to ponder and see the other ways that we can serve you during this series. And on our website, if you go to elmhurst.newlife.nyc, the front page, the home page, all the resources are going to be right there for this series. You can get everything that you that we've mentioned to you. It's going to be available on the website, right on the front page, the home page. You don't have to surf around. You don't have to look. It's going to be right there for you. And so we want you to take advantage of that. Next group of people I want to talk to are those of you that I know are in this room right now and those of you that are watching right now and you just don't even know who this Jesus is. And some of you have been coming to church all your lives, but you realize right now, as you are listening to me, you realize that you actually don't know Jesus Christ. You actually do not have a personal relationship with him. And so my ask of you is that you do not go away in shame. That you reach out. There's a link right there on the screen. And you reach out to us and give one of our pastors an opportunity to reach out to you and just help you to understand what it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember, I said, I'm talking to those of you that have been going to church for years. You've been sitting in a church for years. And this is the first time it hit you that you do not personally know Jesus Christ. Reach out. We want to share with you. We want to make a safe space for you as well. And if you you know Jesus and you know that you've accepted him and you haven't been baptized, what a wonderful opportunity to receive a baptism. What a wonderful opportunity to have a public display and to show your friends and family the life that you have in Jesus. And Pastor Sharon does a wonderful job of just shepherding people through understanding what baptism is and presenting you with the opportunity to do that. And so we really hope that you as well would access that link and give us an opportunity to reach out to you. We are aware that this is going to be a a challenging few weeks but we're here together. Jesus is with us. And we believe that on the other side of it, we are going to be a whole community full of people that are experiencing sexual wholeness. What a glorious opportunity. So I'm going to pronounce a blessing over us. And even in this time, I would say this is so important that you receive these blessings, you receive this benediction and allow God to give you that nurture, that feeling and knowing that he's with you. So brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, my prayer for you is that as you look up and gaze into the eyes of the father and as he gazes back to you, 
that you will remember there is no shame. There is no condemnation. There is only invitation. Invitation from your Father who loves you, who created you, and who has no intention except that you experience the glory and the wholeness for which you have been created. Receive that blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you all. See you next week.